Coming up, a pivotal Game 4 in the Eastern Conference Finals tonight as the Celtics, despite their furious comeback, was downright awful in losing to the Heat. And the Warriors are just one game away from reaching another NBA Finals. Are the Florida Panthers frauds? As they're down 0-3 in their second round series versus the champion Lightning, I'll have all the Stanley Cup playoff action to date. The White Sox and Yankees have a dust-up over Josh Donaldson calling Tim Anderson what? Justin Thomas wins the PGA in a thrilling playoff. Early voting wins the Preakness. And the French Open begins with a weird side of the men's draw. I'll have all of that and plenty more where that came from as I navigate you through the sports landscape. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to... Listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media, I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Wills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. We're just a few days away from the unofficial beginning of summer as Memorial Day weekend is on the horizon, which the same could be said for the latest podcast bringing you all that's transpired in the world of sports as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me, whether you go way back from the very beginning or even somewhere in the middle or just as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. So much to get into, a lot of sports, lots to chew on as we go through the sports universe, whether it's the French Open kicking off yesterday with a weird side of the men's draw, which I'll get to. Also, Justin Thomas and his thrilling PGA playoff. I should probably start with that, but again, the tournament was so topsy-turvy. It was a little bit, I'm not going to say it was boring, but it didn't have a lot of drama until those final few holes, and obviously the 18th is what everybody's probably talking about in the world of golf. So that will be coming down the pike later on, as well as what's going on, 20 seconds with the Preakness, which I could probably just get right off my chest at this moment, where early voting, a 5-1 to one odds, as he was able to win the Preakness, and that will set us up for the Belmont, which will be in a few weeks, and nobody's going to care about that, even with Rich Strike coming back. So you know what? I'm going to just put that to rest as I open this podcast. So no more horse racing until we get closer to the final leg of the Triple Crown, which obviously there isn't going to be one this year. And then we have the baseball, everything that took place over the weekend at Yankee Stadium with the whole Tim Anderson, Josh Donaldson, is he a racist? Is it a racist comment with the what's up, Jackie? I'll get into that as well as what's happening in the NHL, the Panthers being frauds. But we're going to start off with the NBA playoffs. And this is going to be rather quick, people. There has not been a lot of drama in this NBA playoff. And I get it that Adam Silver and the suits over at the NBA office, which is pretty much literally a stone's throw from where I'm sitting at the moment, for them to... Look at what has gone on here throughout these first, I'll say, two and a half rounds. And they've had some thrilling games. They've had some interesting series, especially in the first round. We've talked about Memphis and Minnesota. We talked about the possibility of Toronto pushing the Sixers to a seventh game. Yes, Milwaukee and Boston was an exceptional seven-game thriller, although the second half of the game last Sunday was anything but that. And now as we're into the conference finals... 
And what we've gotten so far to date have been two duds. And we'll talk about the Celtic game in a minute because a lot of people will tell me that, Jay Reels, you mean to tell me that those final couple of minutes in the Heat-Celtics game three wasn't thrilling? I'll say it was interesting. It was not intriguing nor fascinating, and I'll get to that. But I'm going to start off with what happened last night and also Friday night where the Dallas Mavericks lost this series, or at least maybe lost is too strong because Golden State... I feel, would have found the way to win. But for this, at least going six games, it was lost day on Friday night. And the Mavericks had no answer for the Warriors in that second half. They had a big lead in the first half. And we all know that even with a double-digit lead, whether it's second quarter or even midway through the third quarter, you would think a good team would hang on to win. But as we know, the NBA is a game of runs. It is a game where... It's predicated by the three, and when you have shooters like Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, especially those two particular guys, but leading the brigade would be Curry, and for the Mavericks to not come out of that game two, what they split pretty much told you what the rest of the series was going to be, and even with the Mavericks winning a lot of their games at home, especially in the previous series against Phoenix, where it was pretty much a home chalk series until that game seven, when the Mavs were... I don't know what happened. I think it was more of the Suns than it was the Mavericks, although they played well from the start. But now as we get to Game 3 last night, and for them to not really put themselves in a position to get themselves back in the series, the Warriors were pretty much in control. You didn't think at one point that the Mavericks were going to take over. It was pretty much a seesaw type of affair where, yeah, the Mavericks looked like they could get back in it, but then the Warriors always seemed to have a lead. And when... They're able to smell blood in the water. And not to say that this is the 2015 to 2019 Warrior period, which was not that long ago when you think about it, but a team that has the pedigree, has the experience, and the know-how, and pretty much that's what they did last night against a Maverick team that is right now on the brink of extinction here in the 2022 playoff year. You got to give it up for what Andrew Wiggins has done in this series, even though Luka had 40 last night, but Wiggins in that game one, the way he was able to slow down Luka. And then last night, I know that the dunk is going to be an exclamation point on this series when you look back at it, because even if Dallas does show face and wins a game four tomorrow, I don't think they're going to make it out of San Francisco alive in a game five, and they'll just go meekly into the postseason where the Warriors will be back on the big stage for the first time in three years, where, as we just mentioned just a second ago, had that great run of five straight finals, winning three of them. And it's easy to have an early coronation of this Warrior team. I'm going to hold it until Thursday, and you would think that they're going to win maybe in a sweep, but who knows. The next time we reconvene, Thursday night will be a game five at Golden State. But you have to like what you see with this Warrior team with the way they've been playing and they've really been cohesive. I thought that they had a shot to go to a final this year. I didn't think they were going to make it to the finals and even worse, I thought that this was going to be a seven game series. I really had the feel of Dallas and the way they played in the previous series and I understand you can't translate what one team does in one series to the next. Understood. But I really thought that Dallas would at least protect home court to the point where you would have a game six in Dallas. And even if they lost in six, okay, fine. I picked Warriors in seven. I look stupid right now. And I'm sure I'm going to make a lot of other dumb predictions along the way. But you have to give it up for what the Warriors have done. I understand you can look at the Mavericks and say what happened here after that game seven just a week ago. And now they're staring at elimination here tomorrow night in their own building. And we could talk about how it was an overachieving playoff by them beating Utah and then the epic performance in Game 7 against the Suns. But if you're a Maverick fan, this has to leave a bitter taste in your mouth because not to say that you were going to win this series or even think that you had a chance to maybe even go to a final. But if I would have told you at the start of this series that you'd be down 0-3 at this point, you probably would have laughed that off. 
And right now, who has the last laugh? It's Golden State. What more can you say about the Warriors and the job that Steve Kerr has done? And this was a team that two years ago, think about it, they had won 15 games before the pandemic began. And I understand it was post-Kevin Durant. They entered a new building in the Chase Center. And not to say that that had anything to do with it, but it was almost as if the five-year stretch of dominance by the Warriors, and especially with Clay being out, remember he tore his ACL in the finals in that game six against the Raptors. So maybe the hangover of all the success and coming off of that just tough game six in their building, the last one at Oracle, maybe it had some sort of an impact to where they did not play well. They only won 15 games. And if you remember, Stephen Curry also broke his thumb early in that season. So where he was pretty much done, it was just Draymond Green and a cast of characters. And now here they are one game away from making it to the NBA Finals. And on the flip side of that, throughout this very subpar postseason, if you're the NBA, the Celtic Heat Series, we can go back to Thursday night when the Heat led 18-8 and then the Celtics won on a 23-3 run, which was sandwiched by a 17-0 run. And they did not look back from there. Had a 25-point lead at halftime. Ended up winning by 25 points at the end of the game. Marcus Smart, Al Horford come back. Smart nearly has a triple-double. Jimmy Butler did get 29, I believe, but the rest of the team did nothing. And the Celtics played well, played great defense, showed who's boss considering what the Heat did in the third quarter in Game 1. And now as the scene shifted to Boston where we thought it was going to be Not only a raucous crowd where TD Bank is always loud, but you felt that the Celtics with all the momentum were pretty much going to not necessarily have a carbon copy of what you saw in Game 2, but you would think they would come running out of the gate to the point that maybe they would take a 2-1 series lead and really have the Miami Heat on their heels. Instead, the Heat not only threw the first haymaker, but they threw about 4 or 5 right out of the gate to where they led 20-6. At one point, they led 46-20. Midway through the second quarter, the Celtics had no answers. The Heat were physical pretty much from jump. They made seven of their first nine threes. They pretty much did to the Celtics what the Celtics did to them in game two. And even though the Celtics had a 10-0 run to finish the first half to where they were down by 15, and even with everything that took place in that first half, to know that they were down by 15 was almost a victory in that regard. But then the second half begins with no Jimmy Butler. So you're kind of wondering what the hell happened there. He had knee inflammation, did not return. And you got to wonder whether or not he's going to play tonight in game four. But throughout that second half, as they're trying to scratch and claw and chip away at that lead, and the Celtics were doing so. So as the half progresses, you had Marcus Smart leave with an ankle injury where he got rolled up on by Kyle Lowry. Later on, you saw the same with Jason Tatum as he fell to the floor, injuring his shoulder. Both players came out. Smart came back earlier where the Tatum injury was later. And now Jalen Brown has to carry the load for the Celtics here, playing hero ball as he ends up with a career-high 40 points and was phenomenal in the process. Even made a big three to cut the Heat lead to one at 93-92. And... With the way that game unfolded and the way that the Celtics had to fight back and pretty much come from the dead to think that they were one point behind, even then, I still felt they weren't going to win the game. Here's why. At 93-92, before I get to the biggest shot of the game, the Celtics were turning the ball over left and right. They couldn't even dribble half the time. It was almost as if I was taken back to game one where Jason Tatum was just handling the ball right off to the other team. We saw that a couple times with Jalen Brown in the second half. And again, when Marcus Smart is out, and not that he's going to be confused with the Pistons' Isaiah Thomas as far as ball handling is concerned, but man, just having him out of the lineup for a few of those minutes just shows how pivotal, how key, how important this guy is to the team. Not even just from a heart and soul, blood and guts perspective. So with the Celtics now 
down one. And by far the biggest shot of the game, Max Drews comes off the screen and he hits that three on the right side at 96-92. And then, of course, the Celtics turn it over and then Bam Adebayo hits that miraculous shot there as the shot clock goes down and that was the game. But to me, when Strews hit that shot, it took all the air out of the building because if he would have missed that shot, the Celtics would have had a scenario to take the lead. Who knows if that would have happened? And if the Celtics were to be able to take the lead, I thought they had a chance to win the game. I mean, and that would have just been a horrific. The Heat wouldn't have been able to sleep since if they would have lost that game. Even without Jimmy Butler, even without Tyler Hero toward the end of that game, and Bam Adebayo was invisible in the first two games. You couldn't find him with a GPS, a roadmap, and a magnifying glass. But he bursted out 31 points, had a phenomenal game. And the Celtics were just pushed around. P.J. Tucker, you got to give him credit. He had a great game as well, trying to get into the head and pretty much wearing down Jason Tatum in the process. And before I even get to game four, for those who thought that that was a great game, it was not. I don't want to hear about the comeback. I don't want to hear they cut it to one. I don't want to hear it was furious and it was nail-biting to the end. I felt, even when they cut it to one, my gut told me that the Celtics weren't going to win this game because for all the work that they had to do just to get to that point, was there enough gas in that tank? Was there going to be enough for them to have one last attempt to even take the lead? And as we saw, it didn't happen because once Struce hit that shot, it was almost as if that was a game. And there was still time on the clock. It wasn't as if Struce hit that shot and it was 4.7 seconds left. But if you're a Celtic fan, that was just an ugly game no matter how you slice it. A tough loss at the end. It wasn't a brutal loss because it wasn't as if you did take the lead. It's not as if you had a shot there to win the game. Yes, you were down by one point, but with all the turnovers and all the points that the Heat had had off of turnovers, and it was just, ugh. I'm still feeling dirty watching that game. My eyes, I can't even wash the stink, the smell, the burn, whatever you want to use. And that's why this NBA postseason has not been far from great. And had flashes of good. But when we look at what happened in game one, that third quarter, 39-14. When we look at what happened in game two, the Celtics pretty much after that 18-8 stretch took over. And then the Heat were pretty much in control until those final few minutes. And then they were able to right in the ship and got that big shot from Struess. And what to expect tonight, I don't know. And then you have, as I mentioned, Golden State up 3-0 and that series is done. I know that the powers that be at the NBA, they're hoping for Dallas to win tomorrow night. And for damn sure, they're hoping for the Celtics to, doesn't matter how they win. They can win the same way that the Heat won there on Saturday night. As long as they even that series 2-2 before they go back to Miami, anything less than that, the Cheerios the next morning are not going to go down as smooth knowing that you're going to have an elimination game tomorrow night in Dallas, and then the following night, a potential elimination game in Miami. And if that's the case, think about this. The NBA Finals do not begin until June 2nd. So if, by chance, come Wednesday night, that the Heat do wrap up the series and win these next two games, you're going to have to wait eight days before the NBA Finals begin. And at that point, Nobody may even care to watch, even if it is Steph Curry, Golden State, and Miami. Uh, I guess Jimmy Butler, uh, I guess their culture, their defense, their physicality, I, I guess. That's why the NBA, they're holding their collective breaths to see if the Celtics win this game tonight. Anything short of that? Oh, an unmitigated disaster. All right, let's turn our attention to the ice as I lace up my skates. And the first thing I have to say right off the bat, for the 14 Florida Panther fans that are out there, you have to be sick to your stomach. 
President's Trophy winners in the NHL during the regular season doesn't guarantee a Stanley Cup ticket to play for that beautiful trophy, the best in all of sports. And what we've seen so far in this series has been a downright, outright embarrassment if you're a Panther team who has scored goals at a clip throughout the regular season. All right, they weren't the... 84-85 Edmonton Oilers. But for this style and this day and age of hockey, you would have thought that at least it would have been competitive. And granted, they lost game two in crushing fashion when they gave up a goal with three seconds to go in regulation. And to me, that could be it when it comes to this season because the Panthers then went up the turnpike and got their doors blown off to the tune of a 5-1 lightning victory where Jonathan Huberdeau is looking around saying almost, I don't know what hit us. I have to play better. We have to play better. We're in shell shock. How are we going to rebound from this, etc. And obviously he's been a main culprit as to what they haven't done here in this series to go along with Alexander Barkov and just their offensive threats especially that top line, have done zilch here in this series. I don't know if it's more the Panthers or do you have to give credit to the two-time defending Stanley Cup champions? Of course, you're going to have to do that because they are the Lightning and they're going to look to dispose of the Panthers as early as tonight because of a scheduling quirk where they couldn't play a game three on Saturday night where they had to push the game to a Sunday afternoon, so therefore the turnaround is 36 hours, where they're going to play tonight down in Tampa, and the Panthers could be off into the panhandle for the rest of the spring and into the summer if they do not come out with a victory tonight and get swept out of the postseason, which would be, again, an abomination, embarrassing to say the least. Let's see what the Panthers have, if any, pride, heart, gumption to at least get one game before they go back home and who knows maybe they can win a game five in their building before coming back up and maybe getting executed there in a game six but you got to give it up for Tampa they've done a phenomenal job here do you expect anything less from a team that has won two Stanley Cups here pretty much in the last 20 months and a one game away from a conference final and the Panthers I just expected more Not that the Panthers are this juggernaut team or this team that a lot of people thought could go to the Cup. And I'm sure there were some out there that felt that they were Cup-worthy. But not only going up against this team, and we saw some of the warts in the series against the Capitals. I mean, they were down 2-1 in the series and down 3-0. Now, they showed heart by coming back and winning that game and then winning a Game 5 and then Game 6 in overtime. But And Carter Verhage... Where has he been in this series? Considering in games 4, 5, and 6, he was the hero in each one of those games against the Capitals. So just a brutal turn of events for the Panthers from one series to the next as they are swimming in the deep end of the pool and, pun intended, getting struck by lightning here. Ugh, does not look good as they try to crawl out of MLA Arena with at least one win to save some face here on this productive and... I would have to say historic season for the Florida Panthers because they've never won a President's Trophy in their existence. But man, looks like they're going to end a great regular season with a brutal four-game sweep at the hands of the Lightning. Edmonton and Calgary, talk about turn of events. Calgary had to overcome two disallowed goals there on Friday night, but no sweat. They were able to come back and beat the Flames in their building to where last night they pretty much were in cruise control. They win 4-1. I know in the latter part of the game, Milan Lucic ran the goalie Mike Smith, automatically got charged with a game misconduct. Who knows? I'm sure he's going to get suspended. Daryl Sutter and company didn't think it was a cheap shot. Of course, the Edmonton faithful are going to think that. Now, remember, Lucic did play for the Edmonton Oilers not too long ago. So for Lucic, as a matter of fact, I may have been his last team because I know after Boston he went to LA and then Edmonton. So 
I didn't watch the play. It was late, and I didn't get to see it early this morning. But Edmonton, for all the talk, remember they were down 3-2, and for all, pretty much since prior to the postseason and even heading into the playoffs, I talked about how this Edmonton Oilers team needed to make a playoff run. They needed to have these young stars, in particular Connor McDavid, and he's had a phenomenal series to date. Here they are, up two games to one, two games away from a conference final. It will be the first time they will reach that. Now, they still have work to do. Not trying to put them in the conference finals just yet. But knowing that they have a two games to one lead, a game four in their building tomorrow night, and Calgary, we've seen them fight back. Remember, they were down in a series against Dallas, down two games to one. And even though it went seven, but they were able to prevail and move on. We're going to see what Calgary's made of here in the next 24 hours or so on whether or not they're going to be a team that's going to bring this back to Calgary even at 2 or down 3-1 and have a mountain to climb against their hated foes up the road there in Alberta. St. Louis and Colorado, that was a series where the Blues were able to tie and give the Colorado Avalanche their first loss in the postseason. And then you got some controversy game three a couple of nights ago where the Avalanche center, Nazim Kadri ran into the goaltender, Jordan Bennington, which didn't really look as malicious or with any intent. It just happened to be a play where Colorado came across the blue line. There was a shot on net, a rebound. And as Kadri was going toward the net with another Blues player, they crashed into Bennington. Bennington went down into the net. And then as Kadri is getting up and trying to sort out the scrum there, Bennington could not get back on his skates, went crumpling back down to the ice, was able to get up and go off on his own power. But Bennington was gone. They had to bring in Ville Husso, who actually pitched a shutout in game one against the Wild in the first series. But the Avalanche were able to bombard Husso to the tune of a 5-2 win as they take a 2-1 series lead. And then all you heard in the postgame was how the Blues, in particular Craig Berube, saying, look at Kadri's reputation and his history. That's all i got to say. Where Kadri, they guess they deem him being a dirty player. And based on what I saw on the replay, it didn't look anything dirty to me. It's not as if he bowled into him. It's not as if he tried to knock Bennington off his skates or into the net by any means. And then you had people, you had players sniping at Barubi, talking about how he called Peter Worrell, the former Florida Panther player, going now back 24, 25 years, how he called him a monkey. And I'm just using what Barubi had said. And mind you, Barubi had apologized. And again, that was... Two and a half decades ago where a lot of people aren't going to remember that. And you also got to remember too, Barubi is of a First Nations descent. So he does come from a place of Canadian, Indian, somewhere I believe. I want to say he's from Saskatchewan off the top of my head. I believe he is from Western Canada. And that's not to be an apologist for Barubi by any stretch for calling Worrell what he did at that time. But... Now you have sniping back and forth to the tune where Kadri has received death threats and has felt unsafe in the St. Louis area, especially in the hotel where they're staying at. And of course, you have all these keyboard warriors. I get it. You have to put that on high alert because you never know what someone could do in this day and age because Kadri is a Muslim of Lebanese descent. So that's something that anybody who's going to try to attack him in that area, who's a Blues fan, and should know better. Because if you watch the replay, it didn't even look like he tried to hurt him or tried to, any intent, which I don't understand. And again, I'm sure you can look for it on YouTube. But anyway, the Blues now are down two games to one, as you'll have a game four there this evening. And then with the Rangers in Carolina, the Rangers couldn't score a goal After losing game one in Carolina, they got shut out there on Friday night. And then yesterday, they were able to get on the board early. They had a 2-0 lead, and then the Rangers ended up winning 3-1. You also have an incident at the end where Ryan Lindgren, the 
Ranger player got involved with Max Domi to the point where Domi had cross-checked him and then Lindgren slashed and then next thing you know they're wrestling to the ice where Lindgren had Domi in a headlock and next thing you know Gerard Gallant is saying to the Carolina coach Rod Brindamore how that was a cheap shot they were trying to send the message and then Brindamore came out and said I don't know what he's talking about and I quote where Brindamore said that I didn't see what happened so I can't comment on that I don't know maybe he was halfway into the tunnel going into the locker room who knows but I don't know if there's going to be any after effects on this we all know that the Rangers have Ryan Reeves he's their resident tough guy in a league that's let's face it has a handful of tough guys and it'll be interesting to see if Gallant come tomorrow night starts Ryan Reeves to maybe throw his weight around and send a message of his own which I would love but again who does Carolina have to combat that probably nobody off the top of my head so we have that scenario to look forward to if you're into that Ranger Carolina Hurricane series and as I quickly go through them do I think Edmonton's going to prevail I don't know just yet I need to see how they're going to respond tomorrow and it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback that if the Oilers were to win a game five that they could win the series I need to see some mental fortitude by this team. And although they did show it in the first series against the Kings, but this is Calgary. This is a different beast altogether. So I still expect to hear from Calgary, whether it be tomorrow night or even if they're down 3-1. So to me, at this very moment, it's a toss-up. I would think Colorado, maybe even if they do lose a game four, I still think they're going to win this series. And I have a feeling they're going to win a game five. Who knows? Maybe this will rally the troops there for the Blues. And maybe they'll win a game four. But even if they do, I think Colorado will still win the series. Carolina and the Rangers, I would think that the... With the way that these series have gone, especially for the Hurricanes, it was an all-home victory series against the Bruins in the first round. And it's playing out that way here. I could see the Rangers winning a game four and then Carolina winning a game five. And it's going to flip-flop that way. So I would still think Carolina's in the driver's seat. And you can forget about Tampa and Florida. I mean, that series is over. So that's what you got there with the hockey. Let me pivot and turn my attention to baseball. As you had a wild weekend in the Bronx after a rainout Friday, they had single game Saturday and then the doubleheader yesterday. But the game on Saturday took a lot of notice only because you had a scenario where Josh Donaldson had rounded second and got into it with the shortstop of the White Sox, Tim Anderson, to the point where Donaldson called Tim Anderson, hey, what's up, Jackie? Tim Anderson took exception to that, and the reason why I called him Jackie is because a few years back in a Sports Illustrated article, Tim Anderson compared himself to Jackie Robinson. As far as being the guy, and we all know Anderson is African-American, But as far as being the guy that's going to make baseball exciting, that's going to try to turn the attention to not only him, but also to his team, to make the sport exciting. We all know how the sport has gone down the analytics rabbit hole and with the games being much longer than they should and shifts, launch angle, etc., that he was going to bring a little flair, a little swagger and compare himself to Jackie Robinson as to why, I don't know. But pretty much that was his overall analysis or synopsis of him being today's version of Jackie Robinson. So with Donaldson calling him that and Anderson taking exception to the point where later on Donaldson got up to the plate and catcher Yasmani Grandal was drawing at Donaldson to where the bench is cleared. Who knows if it would have gotten ugly. I know they had to hold back Jose Abreu, but the Yankees who were able to win that game and end up losing the series. But with that particular incident, and then in the post game, when you hear what Anderson had to say, that, yeah, I don't play that. And yes, to me, that was racist. He doesn't know me like that, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, his manager is going to back him up, and Tony LaRusso saying that, yes, that is racist. Major League Baseball should look into that, yada, yada, yada. And then Donaldson had responded by saying, back in 2019, when he was a member of the Braves, 
And when they played the White Sox, I guess maybe during pregame or maybe during the game itself when Donaldson was on second and talking to Tim Anderson where they even joked about it, him being Jackie Robinson. And I guess based on that conversation three years later, Donaldson felt it was cool to bring it up or hip or whatever it was. And as we know, Anderson did not like that. Do I think that Donaldson's racist? I'm going to say no. Because based on what he said in the postgame, he admitted to calling him Jackie and he admitted to that exchange that they had three years ago where he thought everything was fine. Now, was it wrong for Donaldson to come out and say that? I'm going to say yes. Just because you said that three years ago doesn't mean that, hey, you could jokingly round second and go to pass shortstop and say, hey, what's up, Jackie? Uh, I, I think that's a little out of bounds. But for Donaldson to admit and also apologize that if he was offended, that should be it. And I even think that Donaldson was looking to reach out to Anderson. Did that happen or take place since then? I don't know that. But if Major League Baseball is going to suspend Donaldson, that's a joke. There's no way that they should. I could see if Donaldson came out with no comment or didn't want to talk about it where you could speculate, on, oh, that didn't look too good. Or by him not saying anything and speaking volumes for Donaldson not confessing or either fessing up to what had happened on the diamond there and if there was any tinge or any feeling of a racist undertone. I didn't take that from Donaldson. And you know me. I'm a Yankee hater. Even if Donaldson's just been there for five minutes. So I'm going to look at this as much ado about nothing. And that's pretty much it. Now the White Sox answered in a big way. Winning the first game. Against the Yankees. And that day night doubleheader. The makeup. And I tell you this. I said this last week. And I'll say it again. If I'm a Yankee fan. And... Brian Cashman in particular, the one acquisition that I'm looking at come the trade deadline is either an eighth inning guy or a closer. Because Aroldis Chapman would scare me to no end. And not that he's been great in these postseasons over the last few years. Shall I bring up Jose Altuve, 2019? And Mike Brousseau, 2020? That's all you need to know. He gave up a home run yesterday in the ninth inning off of A.J. Pollock and Chapman, if I'm a Yankee fan that guy is not to be trusted in a big spot I don't care what the back of his baseball card says I don't care how many strikeouts he gets we all know that he is a walk machine at times and when he can't get that fastball over he has to rely on a slider and that could be a mess too and then the nightcap they went 5-0 which was punctuated by Tim Anderson's three-run homer as he's shushing the crowd around the bases. That's the ultimate poetic justice. Let your bat do the talking if you're Tim Anderson. And the Yankees lose a series for the first time in forever. And actually have lost three or four when you think about it. But that's neither here nor there. They're To me, they're going to run away with the American League. I know that the Rays are hanging around and who knows what the Jays are going to do. But the Yankees, they have the Orioles coming to town as it is. So they're going to pretty much sweep or make up from what has happened here over the last few days. So that was pretty much a big story. I know in Pittsburgh, you had Albert Pujols hit a couple more home runs. He's now 683, just 16 behind A-Rod. And it's going to be interesting, or I should say 13. And 17 behind the magic number 700. Is he going to have enough plate appearances this year to get that? There's enough bad pitching to go around that I think he'll get there. But with Pujols, 683, fifth all-time We'll keep an eye to see how far he goes in the likelihood the last year of his Major League Hall of Fame career. You had Yadier Molina even pitch in relief where the score was 18 to nothing, as the Pirates were embarrassed and he did give up four runs in the ninth inning. This is on the heels of Albert Pujols who pitched a couple weeks ago and little friendly banter back and forth to where Pujols didn't walk anybody. Or I should say Pujols did walk people but then Molina quit back by saying that at least I didn't walk anybody, even though they both gave up home runs and a ton of runs in the process. And I believe their ERAs are both 36. So that was a little friendly play by two long teammates, even though Pujols was in Anaheim for the last decade or nine plus years. Remember, he did play for the Dodgers there in the latter part of last year. So you have that little fun scenario. 
I'll touch on this quick. Max Scherzer out six to eight weeks. Hopefully he's back by the All-Star break. And here's the good thing about it. If the Mets are able to hold the fort here over the next two months, they could have both Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer coming back at the same time. Just think about this. And as it is, they currently have an eight-game lead in the National League East. I understand it's seven currently where the Phillies, Braves, and Marlins all have 22 losses. And I hate to say it, I had a little flashback to last year to where they had a sizable lead. They didn't have an eight-game lead, but I believe around this time into June, July, they had a four-and-a-half, five-game lead. Remember, the Braves were playing on the 500 as well as the Phillies before the Braves came charging back. I even had flashbacks to last year because I thought to myself, with Scherzer on the shelf, is this going to be a scenario where the Mets are going to play 500 and these teams are going to start pecking away at the top of this lead that the Mets have and next thing you know it's going to be 8 to 6 to 4 to 2 and then you're going to get DeGrom and Scherzer back who knows there's even a Bartolo Colon sighting to where he's trying to get himself in pitching shape to maybe the Mets could give him a call how fond he was from the Met fan and not only that but the front office different front office now this isn't Terry Collins managing this isn't Sandy Alderson at the helm so I don't know if Steve Cohen and company will go down that road Maybe sometime the next month. It depends on what the Mets do here. They gave Chris Bassett one year $19 million offer. So Bassett, we know, is going to be in this rotation at least for another year. And pretty much is going to be our ace at this moment. But the Mets continue to win series. They won three out of four last week against the Cardinals. They won two out of three against the Rockies over the weekend. And funny enough, when you look at the Mets overall, they're 6-4 and four in the last 10 This is a team that does not go on winning streaks, but they keep winning series. They did lose to the Mariners last weekend, but that's the only series they lost all year, and that's why their record is 28-15. And pretty much when you look throughout baseball, the Padres have played very well, as this was a team a lot of people thought they were going to do this last year. And mind you, this is a team that hasn't been whole. They do not have Fernando Tatis Jr., who may be coming back, who knows, maybe in a month or so. Blake Snell, as we all know from the Rays a couple of years back, who was supposed to be an anchor to this rotation, has been nowhere in sight. Obviously, he's been injured, but has not pitched at all. But they have brought in that young stud, Mackenzie Gore, who's done very well in his few starts here as a member of the Padres, 3-1 and with a 2.06 ERA. So he's paying early dividends as far as one of the young prospects and young budding pitching stars of baseball. So he's filled in that role nicely. And the Padres are a team that could do some damage. They're just a half game behind the Dodgers in the NL West. And the Padres looking to do big things. I got, again, without Tatis Jr. and Snell. But they've done very well here in this first part of their season. As they finished sweeping off the San Francisco Giants out of Oracle Park and a great job there remember they were on the East Coast they played the Phillies in a getaway day game on Thursday to go all the way out to the Bay Area and polish off the Giants in three straight so great job by the Padres here over the weekend and when we look throughout the sport as we head into the Memorial Day weekend as I talked about the Rays five games behind the Yankees Pretty much, it could be their only threat. And the reason why I say that is because the Rays and the Yankees have not played each other yet. And I believe they will meet up over the weekend for the first of 19 down in Tampa. And I'm sure that that's going to be hotly contested. An early test for the Rays to see where they stack up against this Yankee team who has, again, pitched well. They've mashed the ball. Stubbed their toe here over the last few days. But you would expect the Yankees to play well and pretty much take this division by storm give it up for the twins as they've done a good job here with the white Sox. although good weekend for them especially the back end against the yankees but the twins have played very well and it looks like their offseason acquisitions have paid dividends 25 and 16 i know carlos correa just came off of the il so the twins there may be a team we're gonna have to look out for we've seen this twin team over the last few years, mashed the ball, make it to the postseason, and in both instances, they got pounded by the Yankees, and they lost two of all teams, 
the Oakland A's in that early wildcard round in 2020 when they meekly went into the offseason and the Twins, as we all know, have not won a postseason series in forever. So who knows? Maybe the Twins' fortunes will turn this year. Still a lot of baseball to be played, but we'll take a look at them. As well as the Anaheim Angels with the race against the Houston Astros. And we know the Astros have played very well. And Verlander's turned back the clock, as we've seen. So the AL shaping up pretty nicely. But also one other thing, too, when we look at baseball overall real quick, we almost get a sense for who are going to be the haves and the have-nots here. And it's a little too early to tell because a lot of these teams can change their fate here. And a lot of those teams being the middling teams, whether it will be, let's say, Toronto or maybe even the Braves for that matter, the Phillies, you got to throw them in the mix. Who knows where the Giants will be. But with the two added extra playoff teams, can you already make out who the playoffs or who's going to make it into the playoffs as of May 23rd? A little early, but you would think that the Yankees are going to make it. The Astros are going to make it. All right, Twins, White Sox, you would think both will make it. Maybe even Tampa or Toronto. Anaheim, now right there, that's seven teams and only six are going to make it. But you don't see the Tigers, Royals, Mariners, A's, even the Texas Rangers. Those teams aren't going to make it, at least as of right now. Nationals, Cubs, Reds. Diamondbacks, Rockies. There is that separation that we're starting to see. And once we get past Memorial Day and as we zoom towards the 4th of July, I'm sure you're going to see a lot more separation. So that's one narrative that we'll continue to pay attention to as this baseball season moves along to see if there's going to be any, forget about pennant races, are there going to be any wild card races? Yes, you're going to talk about positioning as far as not only just winning the division, but who's going to host wild card games and things of that nature. But when we look at the grand scheme of things, is this going to be a fascinating summer when it comes to maybe a team that's going to be on the outside looking in somewhere in the middle of July, right before the trade deadline, make a big push to put themselves in a position where they could steal a wild card spot and head into the playoffs in October? A little too early to tell. But right now, if I look into my crystal ball, it's not looking good. Now I'll just leave it at that. All right, now we'll turn our attention to the greens. I know a lot of people are probably wondering, Jay Reels, you could have started off with this. I know in the past I've started off after the Masters talking about Scotty Scheffler or even Phil Mickelson this time last year when he won the PGA tournament. Him being the oldest guy at the age of 50 to do so. Obviously, no Mickelson. He was... Not anywhere near Southern Hills at Tulsa, Oklahoma. And when we take a look at this tournament overall, it wasn't a great tournament. You had Tiger withdraw after the third round where he shot a PGA worst 79. And the weather took a turn. Remember, it was so hot there on Thursday to where you had winds and rain and 60 degree weather. And Tiger was hobbling toward the end of the first round with the bad leg. And obviously he didn't make it out of the weekend, so that was a story. Although he did make the cut, but that was tough to watch. And he is Tiger Woods. So, you know, he's going to get a pass based on his condition. I'm sure people will, will probably say, ah, oh, he should have gutted it out. He should have stuck it out. No, he's got to think about the long game. He's not thinking about just trying to get back into a tournament where he was already 21 strokes behind the lead. So you can forget about that. So Tiger, he gets a pass there. I'm not going to kill him on that. I understand maybe in other areas people are going to, Kill Tiger for not being as tough or at least trying to gut out Sunday. I'm not going to give him. I'll let that one slide. So that's a deal with Tiger as far as this tournament goes. But we had so many changes there, whether it was Rory McIlroy from the start, whether it was Will Zalatoris heading into yesterday and him having a one-stroke lead where Mito Pereira... Justin Thomas was three strokes behind. Pereira was just one stroke heading into the final round. And then Bubba Watson was actually in the mix. Four shots behind the lead after a record-tying 63 on Saturday to get him near the top of the leaderboard. But as we watch this all unfold, it was Mito Pereira and Will Zalatoris back-to-back. It looked like it was going to be Pereira to come out on top there. 
where he's going into the 18 and all he needed to do was go par and even in the post match he said he wasn't concerned about the water and sure enough what happens the water got him he ended up double bogeying he ended up being out of the tournament I'm sure he hasn't slept a wink and probably won't sleep for another month but with Pereira out and Zalatoris in and then the comeback by Justin Thomas who was fast and furious and again was three strokes behind I think at one point was six strokes behind on the day. His furious comeback leads to a playoff, and then what happens? In 2017, he won his first PGA, and then Justin Thomas, victorious, as he wins the PGA for the second time in remarkable fashion. And I get it. Even if you're Will Zalatoris, you probably haven't slept a wink as well. That was a tournament that could have been had based on Pereira faltering at the 18th hole. Overall, a not-so-great tournament and not-so-thrilling until you got to those last five holes with Pereira and then Zalatoris and the comeback with Thomas to where you got just some thrilling golf there at the end. And whenever you have a playoff, especially a playoff when you had a player come back from the way Justin Thomas had to in this stretch and in this case, I get it, it wasn't Tiger, it wasn't Phil, it wasn't Brooks Kepka, it wasn't... Bryson DeChambeau, it wasn't even Scotty Scheffler who didn't even make the cut. I mean, think about this. Scotty Scheffler was hot as a pistol with everything that happened in the first part of the year, him winning the Masters, and didn't even make it out of Friday to be a part of this tournament. You also had Patrick Cantley, Dustin Johnson, Zach Johnson were some of your notables that didn't even make the cut. But Justin Thomas is your PGA winner and goes off with the trophy as the second leg of the four majors are already in the books for golf in 2022. And speaking of second majors, now I'll turn my attention to tennis, where you've already had a major upset at the French. Naomi Osaka, who prior to the start of this tournament, had even said that, and I quote, I think I'm okay. We all know about the mental health issues that she's gone through here in the last couple of years. And her going into this tournament feeling that, hey, maybe I have a shot. Maybe I'll be able to go on a deep run when we look at the women's side of the bracket or the women's just side overall. No Serena, no Ashley Barty, who is the former number one, as we all know, have retired. We get it that you have Iga Swiatek, Victoria Azarenka. When we look at the women's side, Coco Goff, who won her first hand or first round match there yesterday as the tournament did start yesterday and I should have previewed it a little bit on Thursday, which I didn't, so that's my bad to the tennis fan. But for the women's side, it is as wide open as you could possibly get with some of those aforementioned names, even Sloan Stevens, a player like herself who could possibly make a run here when it comes to this tournament. Petra Kvitkova, she's another one that could also make a quantum leap. Layla Fernandez, Angelique Kerber, who won her first match there yesterday and who could probably be one of the favorites to win this. So the women's is wide open. Whereas the men's, it could probably be one of four players. We've talked about a couple of weeks ago, the next big star of tennis who won his match yesterday and won Carlos Alcazar, who just turned 19. He's a player that you're going to watch here who won the Madrid just a couple of weeks ago, beating his idol Rafael Nadal, beating Novak Djokovic, beating Alexander Zverev. But it's weird how the one side of the bracket, based on these rankings... Unfortunately, if it goes chalk, you're going to have a quarterfinal, not a semifinal, and not even a final, where in the quarters, you could have a Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal match at that point in time. And then the winner of that could face Carlo Alcaraz in a semifinal, so not even in a final. So whether you have Danil Medvedev, whether you have Alexander Zverev on the other side, which will probably cancel each other out. Even Stefano Tsitsipas, another guy. But to have those players on that side of the bracket, Nadal, who is the all-time winningest player on clay, Djokovic, who we haven't seen in quite some time, but you know he's amped up and ready to go, and then Alcazar, the upstart, who's going to take tennis by storm, if he hasn't done so already, but this could really be a stage to do so here at a major. Just strange how the that side of the bracket, you're going to cancel out 
two players and then either have one of those three players last standing against either Medvedev, Tsitsipas, or Zverev. That's something we'll have to look at as we get to next week, but I kind of wish they would have broken it up to where we could at least get, as we saw last year, Djokovic go up against the Dahl in the semifinal, but you're not going to get that this year. Or even Alcazar on the other side of the bracket, but again, it goes by these rankings and because of how they connect with one another, you're going to have Djokovic, Nadal, and Alcazar on that one side to where one of these guys could be gone before a semifinal and you're just going to have to live with it. As far as the men's side, who could win? Any one of those guys could win. I wouldn't be surprised if Alcaraz wins. You could see Nadal winning. Djokovic, it's, to me, it's up in the air. And I'm not a betting man. I would have to say maybe Nadal because he hasn't played a lot recently. Yes, he did play at the Madrid but usually he's a guy that wants to keep playing, playing, playing. He's been a little bit smart about it this time around, knowing that after the win that he had at the Australian, knowing that this is his, not home turf, but quote-unquote, and this is going to be an interesting stretch for him to see whether or not he could get that 14th and 22nd Grand Slam victory, which will put him two ahead of both Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer. So we have that tournament to look forward to over the course of the next couple of weeks, and you know I'll keep my eyes peeled for that. All right, so let's get to it, people. My hero and zero of the week to close us out. My hero of the week goes out to Roger Angel, the Hall of Fame baseball writer of the famed New Yorker who died on Friday of heart failure at the young age of 101. Think about this, people. He was born in 1920. So do the math. 101 years, he would have turned 102 this year as he began covering baseball back in the early 60s, and him just having a remarkable career. I mean, what more can you say about a guy who not only lived past 100, but also wrote for the New Yorker magazine? It wasn't as if he wrote for the Times or wrote for a big-time newspaper. So for him to cover the landscape of the sport for six decades, and for him to have this distinction, to be in the Hall of Fame for everything that he's done, What more else could I say? Roger Angel, may you rest in peace. Thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to his family. Lived a wonderful life. You are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to Alabama coach Nick Saban. As he shed some crocodile tears for what Jimbo Fisher, him having the top recruiting class at Texas A&M, and how he wants to point fingers at the former assistant. That's right, former assistant, where... He feels that they've done things the wrong way when it comes to recruiting and how he has sour grapes knowing that he's second when it comes to having this recruiting class. A guy who's won seven championships, who has NFL players littered throughout coming from his institution, and now all of a sudden he wants to cry wolf about not getting the top recruits in the country because some other school was able to rank ahead of him when it comes to top recruits in the country? Seriously, Nick Saban? We're going to now feel sorry for you or cry you a river because you didn't get the top recruits? And that's not to say Jimbo Fisher deserves a pass because I know that in his press conference, he sniped back at Nick Saban as well. But Saban started this whole thing to the point where he had to go on record to come out and say that, oh, this is unfair. We don't have an advantage. We don't have an advantage. Now, I'm paraphrasing, of course. I'm not taking this exact quote, but if you read between the lines, that's what Saban is coming off as, a crybaby here. Nobody wants to hear it. You're always in the Final Four every year. You're always come out on top, minus this year. Obviously, Georgia took you to the back of the woodshed and beat you in a big spot. But Nick Saban, nobody wants to hear from you. Pipe down, my G. You are my zero of the week. That'll do it. Another episode in the books. I'll be back here on Thursday bringing you the latest and greatest of everything that's happening in the world of sports. And I appreciate you stopping by to listen to what it is I have to say. It goes without saying how much I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. As I'm sure whether you listen to one, two, or ten other sports podcasts, just knowing that you paid a little visit to listen to yours truly means a lot. Does not get taken for granted by any stretch of the imagination. And if you haven't done so, if you could just share your appreciation a little bit more. If you haven't done so, like I said at the top. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, you know where to get them. 
Throw me a few stars, write a review. It's going to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there. So if you could do so, I'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, praise, suggestions, or the like, you could do so on my social media accounts at the following. TikTok, the J Reels Podcast. Instagram, J Reels or the J Reels Podcast. Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page or the old-fashioned way. The J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Oh, can't forget Twitter, J Reels, one, just a number. Hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you ASAP. And if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth, again, we'll go 100% to this endeavor. The production, upkeep of the website, equipment, anything and everything that will make this experience for you guys and gals crystal clear from your speakers, earbuds, etc., because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to talk about. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA, as I like to say. Pretty much since birth, I've been talking sports, analyzing it, critiquing it, thoughts, opinions on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.